We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. So I was curious about who radicalized some of these rebels um, and how did that all happen? So I had done some research and, you know, the, the radicalism crept in over time. And I think a lot of Chechen, ordinary Chechens were not happy to see the Wahhabist influence coming in. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by former CIA analyst Susan Willett, and we discuss her novel, The Wayward Assassin. And we dive into the Chechen War, which serves as a background to that novel. Just before we begin, a few things. First of all, we now have a website for the podcast. It's secretsandspies.com, so please go and check it out. One of the cool features of the website is that it highlights all your reviews. So I've been saying for a while now, please, if you want to support this podcast, please leave a review. So the algorithms of your podcast app really like reviews, and so it helps people find this podcast. So your review, not only can it help people find the podcast, but now you can actually read it on the website on the review page. So thank you very much for everybody who has left a review. There's been some very kind ones, and there's been a few unkind ones as well. But I appreciate that everybody's taking a chance to actually engage with the podcast and leave a review. So thank you very much. If you also want to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. For £3 a month, you can become a friend of the podcast. And I will now send you a pack of four Secrets and Spies branded coasters. So if you need something for your glass of scotch or for your martini or for your coffee, then these Secrets and Spies coasters are for you. If you don't wish to become a subscriber, that's absolutely fine. You can go to our Redbubble store and you can get branded coasters, cups, tote bags and even water bottles. So please do check that out. Any purchase obviously goes towards helping the podcast. And lastly, don't forget to watch my film The Dry Cleaner. It's available on Apple TV and Amazon Prime. I think it's about £2, which is about $2-$3. It was my first attempt at spy fiction, and I hope it's not my last attempt at spy fiction. I am planning on other projects at the moment, feature films and TV shows, so watch this space, and hopefully in the not-too-distant future there might be some very cool news about that. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy this show, and I appreciate all your support. Take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you on. So for the benefit of the audience, please, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I was born and raised um, in the Boston area in a coastal community where I lived most of my life until I moved down to Washington, D.C. to work for the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, as a kid, 
I loved mysteries. I wanted to be a detective. I was Nancy Drew. <laughs> um, and then I discovered spy novels, and that sort of changed everything for me. I decided I would be a spy when I grew up, and little did I know I wasn't really cut out for that sort of work where I'd have to convince people to, you know, come in and betray their country on behalf of the United States. And I was much more inclined to be an analytical person, and that ended up being the route that I took. Yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you kind of came to join the CIA and kind of, if you can, what kind of things you worked on? Sure. Um, it, so in college, I saw some, an advertisement in the newspaper uh, for a government job fair. And I went to the fair, not really sure what I was looking for. And there was a CIA representative there. So that's where I spent my time. Um, and I, I applied for a college internship program that they run. Um, it took close to a year, I believe, to get through the entire process between the applications, the background investigation, polygraphs, interviews, all of that. And then all of a sudden, I received a phone call that I was in and I needed to report to Washington, D.C. the next week. So that was fun, quitting my my job and telling them why yeah. <laughs> and where I was going. I think they were a little shocked. Um, so I was worked- expecting a helicopter to pick you up. <laughs> <laughs> now, that would have been great, picking me up from downtown Boston. Well, Epic <laughs> off the roof. Um, <laughs> so I, I worked at the agency um, for the last two years of my college experience and then for when I was in graduate school. Um, and the interesting thing, you know, I, I didn't quite know what to expect. They said it's not you're not going to be making coffee and you're not going to be running the, the copy machine. You'll actually be doing work that other analysts will do. And sure enough, you know, I walked in that first day and there was a folder with top secret documents on my desk. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is really happening. You know, I was I was so excited. So they put me I I got there at an interesting time. It was right before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, So 91, I think the summer of 91 is when I first went down to the agency. And, um, you know, of course, we were watching developments and unrest and rumors of a potential coup, which, of course, happened. It, it failed and Gorbachev was not thrown over, thro- overthrown immediately. And then I was there in, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I ended up covering some of the, the republics that belonged to the former Soviet Union and now were suddenly independent countries. Some had never been independent. Some had been you know, a hundred years prior. Um, so I, I covered Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. And then, um, I think my second and third years, they also threw the stands at me. So Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkestan, Tajikistan, affectionately called the stands. Um, so I, it, <laughs> it was, um, it was like an intense graduate level kind of course in, in history and modern politics and, ethnic studies and all sorts of things that I couldn't have gotten anywhere else. Maybe, maybe even more than that, maybe like a PhD level uh, immersion because all of a sudden policymakers were interested in all these new countries. You know, it wasn't just about what was going on in Moscow. So that's where I ended up. I, um, a couple of my biggest thrills were when the Soviet Union, when the coup was ongoing in that August, we had a task force set up to monitor events you know, overnight, 24-7. And I volunteered to take part and 
work on the night shift because I was young and had energy and all that. No family, all of that, uh, no children to take care of. Um, and so one, one night, I don't know, maybe around four or five in the morning, I heard a phone ringing somewhere in the office and I don't know where everybody else was. So I, I ran out and picked it up and it was the director of the CIA. He was up early. He was calling in to see what hap- happened overnight, what he needed to know about. <laughs> and first I froze because, you know, here I was, this 20-something, uh, and I'm talking to the director of the Central Intelligence Agency about one of the biggest events of the 20th century. So I calmed down quickly and I updated him on everything I knew. And he thanked me. And um, that was that. And when, when I told my boss, she she panicked a bit that the rookie answered the phone when the director <laughs> called, but um, yeah. it all worked out. And then the other the other kind of highlight for me, um, you know, best day at work thing was I wrote um, a piece for the president's daily brief, which is oh, his cool. daily intelligence briefing that he gets. And it was about the Republic of Georgia. There was a separatist movement that was um, being funded by the Russians and encouraged by the Russians and probably some Russian soldiers, it sounds familiar, and had to write a piece about what we thought the government of Georgia would do. And I was challenged multiple levels, you know, up up the chain on my analysis. And I, I stuck with it. I was pretty confident about it. And fortunately, it turned out to be the correct analysis. So that was a rush for a college kid. Yeah, super cool, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> so it's like we got a Clancy novel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I mean, they really do. You know, if there's anybody out there, at least on on this side of the pond, who is a college student, has a college student graduate school, who's interested in this program, I believe it's still going strong. And it's um, it's not about. I never made coffee. I never made copies. I never, you know, mm. it, they they throw you right into the work because they're hoping to get you know, lifelong employees out of this cohort of students. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. It sounds very similar to, I had a previous guest, David McCloskey, and he he had a similarish experience. I think he came through the graduate program as well. So it sounds like it's, uh, yeah, it's a good program. It's great. Really, really good. Excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for that. So um, your novel, The Wayward Assassins, an espionage story that kind of moves from Russia to London, and, um, you know, as, as some of the best fiction has its roots in reality. And before we kind of get into your book, I just want to ask you a few questions about some of the kind of key real life events and situations that informed your book. And um, one of the things I loved about your novel was the fact that it's sort of two key female protagonists, and you've got Maggie, the CIA officer, who is hunting Zara, the assassin. So I suppose my first question is about sort of what is it like being a woman in the CIA, and how did that experience inform your kind of creation of your protagonist, Maggie? Uh, Sure. So I don't know if it was something I just didn't think about at the time, but I never felt, even even with my age, you know, being in my early 20s, I never felt like less than the rest of the team of analysts. I, I, I didn't feel dismissed or less valued. I, you know, I think my work, my analysis spoke for itself. That said, I wasn't there for a decade or, you know, 15 or 20 years where I would have had to compete with men who had been there for a while to get promoted and get plum assignments and that sort of thing. So I, you know, there probably is or or at least was a, a sort of boys club. But I think in the Directorate of Intelligence, which is where the analysts work, 
it's probably less than in the directorate of operations, which is where you get your case officers, your operations officers who are the ones actually recruiting the spies. Um, I remember hearing at the time that it was really difficult to be a female um, operations officer. That really was a boys club and, um, you know, might have been tough for them to land the women, to land the plum assignments, to be taken seriously. And I, I was thinking about this. I, it would be interesting if there was a way I could find these people now, you know, and say, how did your career yeah, go? Yeah. Where did you stick with it? Where did you end up going? And, and what sorts of spies were you recruiting? So, you know, I, I didn't see it. I was young. I wasn't looking for it. And I may have encountered it as my career went along because, you know, there are, there are difficult people, um, and biased people in any and every job that, that you'll encounter. I just was fortunate not to either not notice it or <laughs> not experience it. So, yeah. Your assassin character, Zara. Was she informed by any kind of real-life terrorists or assassins? And um, is that a common thing for women to be involved with? Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it common necessarily. Um, but Zara, the character, first came to me when I saw some photos of Russian, what they call black widows. And these are the wives, the sisters, and the daughters of men, mostly Chechen men, who were killed at the hands of the Russian military, Russian intelligence. These women then became terrorists with the goal of avenging the deaths of their loved ones. And, you know, some of them were actual suicide bombers and others were, you know, they, they participated in the Moscow theater siege in 2002. And I remember seeing photos of these women and just thinking, you know, I was appalled and fascinated by them, you know, People suffer losses all the time. Most, 99.9% .9 of people don't become suicide bombers in the aftermath of that. Mm. So I was really fascinated by their motivation. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that it was a religious motivation for all of them. There's a lot of hatred, and there was at the time, between Russians and Chechens. And Chechnya was changing. And so there was a bit of a clash of civilizations as well. So... For Zara, I decided that I didn't want her to be motivated by a religious imperative. I wanted her to be motivated by revenge. I thought it would make her um, a much more interesting and sinister character. And adding to the mix, she had to um, hide that that was her primary motivation. She had to sort of pretend that, you know, she was in on the, you know, the radical Islam aspect, because, you know, talk about being surrounded by men. She was, <laughs> she was a single, a single woman among yeah. bands of uh, Chechen rebels. Yeah, which can't be easy. <laughs> no, no. No, actually, it's interesting you talk about that, you know, her being a sort of uh, more motivated by revenge is an interesting section in the novel where she arrives in London and meets up with, and I've forgotten his name now, but her kind of um, associate who's the rebel leader in London. And there's some interesting moments in that scene because you're kind of getting a sense of the sort of different motivations at play because even he, who's supposedly kind of a religious character, sort of got quite a few contradictions himself. He does. He's very motivated. It's uh, Imran Bukhayev, and mm. uh, he's very motivated by money. And um, 
you know, he didn't, of course, in the Soviet Union, you couldn't practice any religion, really. I mean, they had the official Orthodox Church, but that was largely co-opted by the KGB. Um, but Islam, no, you, you could practice that religion in any meaningful way if you were a Soviet citizen. So Bukayev's a little bit of an older character. So he grew up in a very secular world when he lived in Chechnya, um, which is part of Russia. So he, he toes the line. He knows how to play, you know, that he has to be a, quote, religious character. But his motivations are certainly not pure. Um, mm. He loves money. <laughs> he loves the funding that he's getting. He loves the power. He loves to plan attacks. He hates the Russians and so on. Yeah, from what I've read around some terrorist organizations, there's always an element of that where some of the people at the top start to kind of like the trappings of the money that comes in and it starts to kind of take over a little bit of what their original goal was. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it seems quite realistic. See, if you're assassin Zara, she has links to the Chechen rebels and her family were killed during the war with Russia. So I was wondering if you could give us some background on the sort of two Russian wars against Chechnya and how that kind of inspired the characters in your story. Sure. So I, um, because of my work at the CIA, I became very interested in all of the different ethnic groups and religious minorities and so on in Russia and in some of the, the newly independent countries that came out of the Soviet Union. And, you know, I mean, hundreds and hundreds. I, I think they say there's over a hundred different ethnic groups in Russia alone. So I was interested in the Chechen Russian war, the first and the second, and and followed it pretty closely. So the first war was in the mid-90s, and it was uh, Chechnya declared itself an independent state. Russia said no, and it basically kicked off this first war. But there, there's a much longer history of animosity between the Russians and the Chechens. I mean, it goes back to the Tsarist days, and then Stalin deported thousands of Chechens out of the, the Chechen area, uh, in the Caucasus, to Siberia, to Central Asia. Uh, they weren't allowed to return until uh, the mid-1950s. You know, there, there was always sort of this agitation to separate themselves from Russia. So it wasn't just something that popped up after the Soviet Union collapsed, but the, co the collapse of the Soviet Union allowed these fissures uh, and tensions to bubble up. And in the case of Chechnya, to boil over. In the early 90s, after the collapse, uh, Boris Yeltsin was the Russian president, and he reached out to, I think, I think there were 89 autonomous regions or ethnic enclaves mm. within all of Russia, which of course is a vast country, and had them negotiate and sign a, a federation agreement. And 88 out of the 89 regions signed this agreement and the one holdout was Chechnya. So the, you know, trouble was already brewing at that point. So the first Chechen Russian Russian war was in the mid nineties. Thousands died on both sides. Um, eventually, you know, it, it was very unpopular in Russia, the, the Russian military action, which was pretty brutal. So Yeltsin in 96 ended up signing a, a peace treaty, a very uneasy peace treaty with the Chechens. So that, that was the end of the first war, but the resentments were still there. The, the destruction had happened. It was a very tenuous, quote, peace. The second Chechen Russian war broke out about 1999 officially when 
the Chechen president announced that Islamic law would be phased into the republic over the next few years. And this is when I think a major shift took place. I, Not everybody, this is a generalization, but I think the first war was less about the Islamic influence in Chechnya. But because of Russia's brutality and the influx of um, some outside forces, some some radical groups coming to Chechnya, yeah, it became more of a religious struggle. Certainly not everybody and probably not even every fighter who participated. Mm. So this war broke out in 99. It lasted until 2009. It wasn't always, you know, a super hot war with bombings and so forth every day. But in 2000, Russia was able to, they completely basically raised uh, Grozny, which is the capital of Chechnya, and appointed a their own leader to uh, run Chechnya. But it was, it was a low-level sort of or- urban warfare war for the next eight or nine years with, yeah. you know, Russian soldiers being killed and Chechen rebels being blown up and so forth. And I think, interestingly, and it's, you know, it brings us right up to the present. The person that the Russians appointed to lead Chechnya was a fellow named Ahmad Kadyrov, um, or Kadyrov. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. He was killed in a, in a bomb blast a few years later. His son, by Chechens, interestingly enough, his son is the current president of Chechnya. Mm. And he is a Putin loyalist. And we've seen him being involved in Ukraine, which we can get to later. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so this this guy Ramzan, who is who is the son, he's he's part two uh, of the Kadyrov mm. family, became prime minister in two thousand six of Chechnya after his father was killed with the full support of Russia, um, and then he was appointed president by Moscow in two thousand seven. So he's he's been in power for over fifteen years. So finally, in two thousand nine, the Russians said, you know. We won. You lost. Chechnya is now under our full control, and it largely is. I, I, you know, I think there are still the occasional rebel strikes against both the Chechen government and and Russian targets, and in other places outside of Chechnya, in some of the neighbor, neighboring republics, there's some of the same sort of activities, terrorist attacks, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Well, could you talk just a little bit about, I suppose, the complicated picture of the rebel groups? Because obviously, some of these rebel groups then used terrorist tactics, which led to the Moscow theater siege in 2002, and the Beslan school attack in 2004, which features in your book. So I was wondering if you could just sort of talk to us a little bit about that, and also then um, the significance of those events. Sure. The Moscow theater siege was occurred in 2002, and it was when I think about 45 Chechen rebels, including a number of women, these black widows, stormed a Moscow theater full of hundreds of theater goers and um, held them hostage for several days. The Russians, um, the government, decided to pump in, and I, I forget the name of the gas, but they pumped a gas into the theater saying they were going to knock everybody out and then be able to go in and, you know, rescue everyone. Well, it killed, I believe, over 100 Russians, and I believe all of the um, hostage takers as well. And there were photos online of, you know, these black widows in theater seats, and they look like they're passed out, but they're dead uh, because the, the gas that was pumped in was was fatal. And so that was pretty controversial, the way that was handled, both inside and outside of Russia. 
but that really, you know, for people who, who don't pay attention to different regional wars, you know, uh, not everybody is into these things. Yeah. That yeah. definitely caught worldwide attention. And then I followed it. It was interesting. I thought, well, that's an escalation, you know, for the, the Chechen rebels to do something like that in Moscow. And then in 2004, um, it was the first day of school in September, which is, which is a big deal in Russia. It's basically a holiday and it's very exciting. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal, much bigger than here in the United States. A bunch of rebels, Chechen rebels seized an elementary at, well, a school, I believe it's elementary level, but I'm not sure how that translates in Russia, and held hundreds of students and teachers hostage for about three days. The Russian military security forces moved in. Um, you know, there were gun battles, there were grenades inside the school that were set off. It was just, it was a horror, absolute horror. And that next to 9-11 for me was, it was unfathomable um, what happened and why, and especially because of all the children. Yeah. I had young school children at the time, and uh, it was every parent's nightmare. To this day, I still, you know, I think about it, and I'm, I imagine being in the position of one of the parents outside the school. And, you know, we've seen things like this on a smaller scale with the horrific school shootings, um, where it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lone madman, which is horrible enough. But the thought of a group actually plotting to take over a school and thinking that this is the way to achieve our goals. So when that happened, I, you know, I don't know that I made the conscious decision to use it in a book, um, because I certainly wouldn't want to exploit such a horrible tragedy, but it was, it was a way, I think, for me to process through what those people must have gone through. So on some level, you know, if we had a psychologist on here, they could probably explain why I did this. <laughs> but I, I just a way for me to put myself there and and process it. And mm. and that's sometimes how I have to do things is write it down and work through it. Yeah, I could empathize with that. Yeah. Yeah. Something that far away uh, from my little comfortable, safe home here in Virginia, it made a huge impression on me. So that's where it came from. And that was the inciting incident in The Wayward Assassin. And it takes off from there. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean, I don't think it was a mistake to include that in the book. I think it adds, it, there's something, yeah, very raw and real about that. And I remember watching the events on on the news back in, in London. Um, and it was a horrifying event, uh, as horrifying as 9-11, but on, obviously on a smaller scale. But it, but when attacking children in a school, it does, um, yeah, it, it was it was dreadful. I remember. I remember the pictures of the poor kids being pulled out and, you know, and I think they were stuck in there for about two or three days. And it was so hot. They had to like, you know, they're all in their underwear and stuff. And it was just dreadful. The whole thing was just appalling. Yeah. And I, you know, I tried not to make it, you know, it was horrific. And if people want to read more about it, they can. Yeah. I didn't want to exploit the deaths. And so I kept the gruesomeness to as much of a minimum as I could without, you know, diminishing how horrible it was. Yeah. Yeah. No, you handled it very respectfully and no, it was fine. So I suppose then one thing that comes up in your book as well is about the with the rebel groups, there might may or may not be links to Al Qaeda. And I find that quite interesting, especially at that time. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about sort of the rebel groups and then those sort of outside sort of forces that um, influence them, such as potentially Al Qaeda um, and Saudi backed donors and things like that. 
So I was curious about who radicalized some of these rebels um, and how did that all happen? So I had done some research and, you know, the, the radicalism crept in over time. And I think a lot of Chechen, ordinary Chechens were not happy to see the Wahhabist influence coming in. And, you know, all of a sudden wanting Chechens to rein in their girls and make them wear hajibs and abayas and so forth. So I looked into it and, and found out that in 1996, Al-Qaeda's second in command at the time, Ayman al-Zawahiri, mm. had investigated moving his terror network to Chechnya, which didn't sound like a good idea because the Russians would not, would not have, uh, you know, they were they were safer in Pakistan and, and yeah. Afghanistan, I would think. So that was interesting that it was already at that level of attention to Al-Qaeda back in 96. And then I, I read something else that several of the 9-11 hijackers had wanted to go to Chechnya to fight, bef obviously before 9-11. Yeah. And so I, I, I think... Maybe in the West, we didn't appreciate how, how attractive that prospect would have been to some, some Al Qaeda members. We, I know the intelligence community was paying great attention to Al Qaeda. Yeah. Because when I were, I worked on Capitol Hill in the mid nineties for the intelligence oversight committee and we had multiple briefings on a guy named Osama bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda network. So, you know, I don't remember them ever talking about Chechnya during these briefings, but that doesn't really surprise me because it probably looked like small potatoes compared to other places Al-Qaeda might, might go after. I also saw media reports that hundreds of millions of dollars were funneled into Chechnya to help in the fight against Russia. You know, so there was monetary influence, there was political support from Al-Qaeda, and there were uh, Chechens who attended training camps in Pakistan, Al-Qaeda training camps, um, including a fellow named Shamil Basayev, who was at one time the leader of the Chechen militants. And he visited there in 94, and he later returned with a bunch of fighters that he wanted to be trained. So they actually went to Pakistan. And then fast forward 10 Plus years, uh, in 2015, the Islamic State, which of course didn't exist when I wrote this book, um, accepted a pledge of allegiance from the militants in Chechnya. So they haven't given up <laughs> on, yeah. you know, keeping, on radicalizing the people in this part of Russia. Mm. I mean, am I right in believing there's an element of that happened in Bosnia as well during the Bosnian War? Yes. In fact, when I worked on Capitol Hill, we, did an investigation into um, Iranian armed shipments to the Bosnian rebels. And I don't know about, probably later, it was more of Al-Qaeda. Uh, you know, the Iranians do their own brand of terrorism. So that was a bit alarming. And I, I traveled to Croatia for work when I was on Capitol Hill in, I think it was, 98. I believe it might have been late 97. Mm. Um, and we were a couple of us, uh, Capitol Hill staffers were seeing the city with the CIA station chief, who was a great guy, giving us a tour of the city. And he actually told us that there were people that they believed were Iranians who were filming the school buses that carried the children of diplomats yeah. to and from the American school in Croatia, which was chilling absolutely chilling yeah so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah not good 
On a similar note, I mean, we mentioned him before. So obviously, one of the key characters Zara connects with is the Chechen rebel leader, who sort of um, who has connections to Saudi Arabia, and he's based in London, living as a political refugee. Was there any sort of basis of fact for your choice for that choice in your book? There was. So there is a former Chechen prime minister who, last I checked, lives in London, and he's been there since two thousand and two. He is wanted in Russia for terrorism, just like. Uh, my character Bukayev. Yeah. The difference is, I, as far as I can tell, um, this this fellow, the real life uh, former politician, is Ahmed Zakayev. As far as I can tell, he has no ties to terrorism whatsoever. I understand the Russians would disagree because he did lead rebels, um, but he fled at some, I guess, in two thousand and two. I'm I'm not sure entirely why. If he fell out of political favor or didn't like the rattle, radicalization that was going on in Chechnya. In any event, I when I heard about that, I was like, aha, I need a character. Zara needs somewhere to go. She needs financial support. She cannot possibly, you know, launch her next attack without a network, some kind of support system. Yeah. That's where Bukayev came in. The difference between him and the real life Chechen leader is that um, he's actually a bad guy. He is a terrorist mastermind. He's a, a fundraiser, a funneler of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from Al Qaeda benefactors. Um, so yeah, that, that ha- actually has a, a basis in, in fact. And there have been several attempts on his life that they believe have come from Chechens, you know, probably sent by Putin would be my guess. But yeah, very interesting. Very, very interesting. And it's interesting that. You know, he was able to get asylum. I'm not sure if it was because of the Russian threat against him or the Chechen threat or, you know, how much daylight is between those two threats. I'm not not sure they might be one in the same. I think there was a policy in British intelligence in the early, in the sort of mid nineties um, where they want they they were kind of happy to grant asylum to certain people just so we could kind of keep an eye on them over here. Um, and I think in the end, I think after the two thousand and five London bombings, I think that that policy was changed. But uh, some interesting sort of stuff there. I think they called it the Covenants of Security or something. I think it was what it was called. But yeah, it was a very interesting, interesting. time, I believe. <laughs> yeah. I also ask you a bit about the um, the significance of the is it the Gloucester Hotel where um, uh, where Maggie stays. Um, I just had to wonder whether that was a place where you had stayed at one time. <laughs> I I had not stayed there, but you know the internet is a wonderful thing. I tried. I wanted to yes. put her in a. You know, I I looked at all sorts of hotels in London online, um, and I, and I have stayed in London. I just it's been a while, and I can't quite remember where I stayed. Um, but no, I sorry. just. Um, <laughs> I wanted, you know, you, you get the Google Maps and I'm looking at, you know, where could all of these events take place reasonably? And hopefully, yeah, hopefully yeah. I got it reasonably uh, correct. Um, so, no, there there wasn't a particular significance. I just, um, I liked the look of it and I picked it. No, oh, cool. Sadly, that particular hotel's changed hands, I think, since you wrote the book. Because I think, so I was Googling it myself yesterday and it seems to have changed a little bit now. But oh. But it's still there, but it's just not that name anymore. But uh, no, it's cool. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by spy sites in fiction. So it's, uh, and South Kensington, sort of where it's near, is very much a spyish kind of area, you know. It's, uh, it's a very yeah. cool area. <laughs> That's yep, cool. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Uh, one other thing I was to ask you about was sort of what is the sort of situation in sort of Chechnya today with Russia? Well, if you've been watching the news in Ukraine, and I, I think a lot of people have, um, 
there was this big to-do about Chechens uh, coming in to try to assassinate the Ukrainian president. Whether or not that's entirely true or it's a propaganda effort to instill fear in regular Ukrainians, because I certainly want wouldn't want a band of Chechens roaming about my neighborhood. <laughs> um, you know, they have a reputation for being brutal. They're well trained a lot of these guys in urban warfare from their experiences. So the interesting part for me with Chechnya and Russia is that we have this, the Ramzan Kadyrov guy, the president of Chechnya, who is clearly Putin's puppet. He was appointed by Russia. He's been in power since, um, I think I said 2007 as president. He's only 45 years old and he's been in power for 15 years. There's no doubt that he is, will do whatever Putin says. He will hold on to power. I think that opposition to Russia remains strong among much of the population of Chechnya, but their president is a brutal dictator and he will torture and kill, have his men torture and kill anyone on all spectrums, you know, the, the entire political spectrum from people who are anti-Russian to, you know, LGBT activists. Yeah. You know, there are human rights violations. So as it stands right now, there's very little chance, I would say, that um, anti-Russian forces in Chechnya can do much at all because their president is is completely beholden to Vladimir Putin. So, you know, he's only 45. If nothing happens to him, he could rule with his iron fist for 30 more years. But he I assume he rules at the pleasure of Putin, and we don't know Putin's eventual fate. Uh, when Putin's out of the picture one way or another, mm. what happens to Chechnya? Do the rebel forces rise up again? Does it become, do they actually hold a free and fair election? I, you know, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. Well, you know, we've already sort of mentioned it. The Chechnya background feels very relevant to Russia's war on Ukraine that's currently going on. Do you have any insights or thoughts on that war that uh, you'd be happy to share? Well, I think, um, you know, people have had such an interesting reaction to it, to Putin must go, to the Ukrainians deserve this, to it's none of our business. You know, I, I take more of a CIA analyst look at it and looking at patterns. And I would have been surprised if the Russians didn't invade. And I know a lot of people were, oh, we didn't think he would do this yet. If you look at Vladimir Putin's history, it wasn't surprising at all that it's a pattern that he has. I mean, in, it was, uh, 2008. He did the same thing essentially in Georgia and he, he was messing around in Georgia with separatist movements well before that, before 2008. Uh, you know, you, you claim there have been crimes against Russians. You claim all sorts of things. You secretly or not so secretly support separatist movements and ruin all of these countries. So he's done that in in multiple places. And with Crimea, whatever the arguments are about, is it really Russia's? Is it really Ukraine's? It was pretty much the same pattern. So, you know, I think at the center of it all is is this one personality and it's it's Putin and he's brutal. And I mean, he, I think it was 2002, it's all but 100% certain that his people poisoned the one of the presidential candidates in Ukraine because he was much more Western looking than 
Russian, uh, you know, a fan of Russia. And um, yeah, he survived and he actually became president. Um, but he was horribly disfigured for a time from whatever this poison was. So um, I'm not surprised that any of this happened. I am surprised by how well the Ukrainians appear to be doing. And it's interesting that they're back in peace talks. I wouldn't trust Putin at all. But I think if they can obtain some sort of ceasefire and withdrawal, yeah, everybody can have time to breathe and think and find a way forward where there still is an independent Ukraine and whatever Russia's concerns are about NATO are addressed. Yeah, yeah. One question is sort of about Putin. I mean, do you think this could be the beginning of the end for Putin? Um, especially when we were talking about earlier about your time um, looking at the end of the USSR. I kind of feel like there's some parallels, but I don't know what your thoughts are. You know, when I think about Gorbachev, and obviously he had his faults and he did repress some minor uprisings throughout the Soviet Union, he didn't, he didn't strike me as nearly a fearf- as fearful a character as Putin. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I don't know who around Putin, it can't be one person you know, mm. that would oust him. For now, I think he's secure. Mm. You know, there are rumors about his health. I don't necessarily believe them. I think he's probably pretty paranoid. And, you know, you see these yeah. meetings with him sitting miles away from the people at the end of the table. Uh, yeah. So he's, pro- you know, he's probably paranoid about COVID and paranoid about poisonings and paranoid about all sorts of things. So I don't know. I feel I feel like he rules with such an iron fist that this may not be the end of him. Yeah, he's a survivor, isn't he? He is a survivor. He is. Yeah. So it 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 would take a. I think if there was some, were to be a coup, um, it would take a pretty secretive group where they can all actually trust each other and know that he, you know, one of the guys in the group isn't going to tip off Putin. And that's it's a terrifying prospect if I Yeah. You know, I can't I can't imagine that everybody around him wants him to remain in office. Yeah, I'm just thinking of that film Valkyrie about the plot to kill Hitler, but uh, that didn't really work out too well for them. So No. Yeah, it's no. not easy. <laughs> no. Not easy taking out dictators. Well, let's let's move on to your your novel itself, so the way with assassin. Can you uh give us sort of a brief overview about the book? Sure. So uh, The Wayward Assassin is the second book in what will be a longer series of wayward books. That's the the series name we've sort of settled on. This story begins a year after Maggie, who is an intelligence analyst and my protagonist, has lost her fiancé in a terrorist attack in the Republic of Georgia in Tbilisi. Uh, She is obsessed with hunting down the assassin who killed her fiancé. And since we've already mentioned her name, I'll mention it again, is Zara, a Chechen woman whose most of her family has been killed by the Russians, and she herself is bent on revenge. When Maggie gets a lead on Zara's location, she grabs hold of it and follows it across the globe, basically, from Moscow to Beslan. They end up in, well, Maggie ends up in Chechnya, to Georgia, to London, and finally to the United States, to the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and in the process of hunting for Zara, she uncovers Zara's plans for another horrific terrorist plot that Maggie is determined to unravel and stop, even if she has to do it herself. Um, she faces odds on both sides of the ocean from her own government and, uh, you know, from a very clever, dangerous opponent in Zara. 
what was it led you to writing this book and obviously the the series of books that it's a part of? Well, I've always loved spy thrillers. No surprise there. Mm. And and I used to think, I wonder if I could do that. Could I actually write a book? So I first started thinking about it seriously back, boy, in the late nineties when I worked on Capitol Hill for the House Intelligence Committee. Our office was located in the attic of the United States Capitol building. So if you picture the iconic big white dome that, you know, sort of dominates postcards and images of Washington, D.C., up in the dome, there is attic space. And we were tucked away up there, and it was virtually impossible to stumble upon if you were a tourist or even a congressman. They had a hard time finding where we were hidden. Um, (laughs) So, uh, you know, great job. Absolutely loved everything I did, except probably working on government budgets. That was tedious. So my mind would wander and I just think, you know, what if something really exciting happened to me when I was here? Um, And this is before 9-11 and all, all the horrible things that came after that. And I just, I came up with a character who um, used to work for the CIA like me and then worked for the House Intelligence Committee like me. And unlike me, she lost her fiance to a terrorist attack and uncovered an American role in that event. And that set off the first book. So I had this in my head for quite a few years. And when I finished writing that, I thought, well, Maggie's story is not really over. So then I wrote the second book. Um, and interestingly, the, the terrorist in the first book, I wrote it before 9-11, at least the first draft, was Osama bin Laden. And after 9-11, I decided I didn't want to give him, Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't going to write about him. Free publicity. <laughs> and free publicity. And, uh, and that's where I came up with the idea of Zara. I thought, Oh, and I, you know, I was, I was the best thing I could have done is take him out and create an entirely new character with different motivations and much more depth than I could have put into, you know, his character. Yeah. So, uh, I wrote the second book because her story was clearly not over after, after the wayward spy, we got the wayward assassin and I'm about a thousand words away from, um, typing up the end on the third book, which is the wayward target. Um, so we will have Maggie back again, finding ways to, you know, disobey orders, get herself in trouble and then save the day at the end. Excellent. Well, good luck with the uh, extra thousand words there. It's, uh, it's, always, uh, it's always tough. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's always I'm thinking of, of how to make the perfect ending. So, yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, that is always the hardest bit, I think, isn't it? But um, the, how have the books have been received so far? I think, well, I'm, uh, the first book won um, an award for from the Independent Publisher Book Book Awards for, uh, you know, the best thriller of 2021. I just found out that I was nominated for a Benjamin Franklin Award, or the book was, um, the first book. So the, that award ceremony is uh, coming up in about a month. And with the second book, I'm, I'm seeing traction. You know, I'm new to this book business and, and people, my publisher and my agent had said, you know, you've, you've got to be patient. Um, they're not a lot of one hit wonders. Yeah. And your second book will build on the first book's audience and your third book will build on that. And people love a series. And it's true. I've seen, um, a whole bunch of people who have bought 
the wayward assassin and then say, oh, wait, there's a book that comes before that this. So sales for the first book have gotten a bump because of the second book. And then yeah. everybody who read the first book has bought the second book. So yeah, I'm I'm very, very pleased. Yeah. Well, yeah, not a lot of people know, like with John Lacari, I think the spy that came in from the cold, which was the book that arguably launched him. I think that was his third novel. Um, he'd written two others. And the same with, forgive the comparison, if you're not a fan, Dan Brown. I mean, I think he, he'd written two other novels, I think, before the the one that launched him, which the name escapes me at the moment. Um, oh, God, the, the one with Tom Hanks in the film. Yeah, I've I know. completely forgotten um, it now. But <laughs> the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> you know the one I mean. The Da Vinci Code, yes. The Da Vinci Code, yes. that's it. Yeah, and that's actually a sequel, I think, isn't it, to an earlier book, which then they, yeah, so they made the Da Vinci Code first, and then they made the, the prequels, the sequel, and the films. And yeah, so <laughs> it's not, it's, it is quite complicated, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, one other, a few other questions before we we park up and say, as a former CI analyst, you know, how does you how does it work for you as a novelist, adding that real world detail, and are there things you have to be careful about, and do you have to get clearance for your books? I do. Um, it's it's a lifetime obligation that you you know you sign when you leave the agency. So. They have a, a publications review board where you send your manuscript. I think um, people who write fiction have an easier time of it. Uh, they they took nothing out of the first book, which th- there was one part that I thought it was dancing a little bit close to something that actually happened. Mm. Um, but I was careful because you know I'm not I'm not going to spill the beans and reveal secrets, and I'm legally I can't. So even if it sold more books, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it um so um and then the second book again they took nothing out of it and i thought okay and you know my my dream job would probably be to work for the publications review board because a you get to read books all day about spy things yeah <laughs> and um b you get to do research to look into whether there's classified information in the book <laughs> so that would probably be my dream job yeah it would be great to just read all day and get paid for it yeah, so that would be quite cool. <laughs> I, i'll be sending the third book off to them shortly and i i don't think there'll be anything in it that they'll object to so no oh, that's good that's good is there any advice you would give to budding writers who who especially have an interest in espionage absolutely there is so much information available declassified information historical information on intelligence agencies, operations, people that really, you know, do your research, do, um, I'm dying to get to the National Archives, which have basically been closed for the past few years because of COVID. And just, I, I could camp out there and start digging into historical documents. And, and I, I particularly like unclass or declassified documents, you know, do your research and, and also read other spy books, read, as many different types as you can. You know, there's techno thrillers, there's um, ones that focus on the Middle East, Russia, the, you can read the Cold War classics and figure out what keeps you turning pages and what keeps you up at night. And that's how you want to structure your writing. And I think mm-hmm. the other thing I would say is if you've actually, you've got a manuscript, you don't know if it's any good, you're afraid to send it out, you, you can have friends read it, you know, family, mom. But I would suggest getting a developmental editor, if you can afford that. Those are the people who can take sort of a bird's eye view of a book and and almost do an x-ray or an MRI of the book and see yeah. where the bones are broken or the, the organs are diseased. And, uh, you know, it's invaluable um, because when you're inside your own book for so long, it's hard to see where things aren't connected and, and don't make sense. 
you know, if you're, if you're serious, you, at some point you want to get a, a good developmental editor and that that's different from, you know, the copy editor who's looking at your spelling and grammar mm. that can come later. Uh, <laughs> but keep reading, keep writing, yeah. don't give up. It's a very long and frustrating process. And, you know, if it works out, it's definitely worth it in the end. Yeah. Do you have any, um, I'm always fascinated by this one. Do you have any kind of like writer habits? Do you, um, I'm assuming this is not your primary focus. You have to sort of work it around doing a job and things. I mean, how do you go about sort of writing your novel? <laughs> well, you know, I, it's sort of a tale of two, two processes. The first two books I wrote, you know, I took a year, year and a half writing at night when the kids were in bed, um, hmm. and editing. When I got my edits back, nights and weekends, because I, I do work full time. Mm. And the third book, I had planned to start it in September. And I thought, well, maybe yeah. October. And then, well, kind of busy and, you know, it's nice out. Let's go to a winery. And <laughs> then it was the holidays. And then January came and I said, I haven't started my third book and I don't even know what it's about. So I sat down, I think January 2nd and, and wrote two or three page very rough synopsis of what I think should happen next. And I let my editor know and she's like, okay, great. Could you have it to us by the end of March? And I just about, you know, <laughs> yeah. just about passed out because it, you know, that's three months, you know, 90,000 plus words. So it's, it's been, I am the kind of worker who <laughs> when the pressure's on, I get it done. And if I can procrastinate, I do. Yeah. So probably not the healthiest work habits, but it's been nights and weekends since the <laughs> beginning of January. So I think my family's ready for me to type the end. Um, but <laughs> yeah. it is the only, it's the only thing I do. The only thing I do where I can, eight hours can go by and I don't even realize it because I'm so sucked into the story. And I realize I haven't really eaten and I definitely haven't showered <laughs> so uh <laughs> yeah. i love it i would love to, i would love to do it full time so we'll see if we get there well fingers crossed yeah no no, no that'd be brilliant i mean the books i've really enjoyed the book and there's no reason i think why um it, you know you shouldn't be able to sort of do this full time and i hope it sort of lands with the audience and strikes a chord you know and um, with procrastination i think that's an underrated skill i do some of my best thinking whilst procrastinating <laughs> so you know <laughs> so, so uh, I, I think it's part of the process but there we go <laughs> well um before we finish today is there anything else you'd like to to add any sort of final thoughts to part with uh, I would say just stay tuned for book three, The Wayward Target, next spring. And, you know, I'm not sure how many books we'll have. Will it be five, 10, 20? I, you know, we got to see what, what, there's so much. I love that the books that I, when I wrote the books, they took place when they did because I have all these intervening years. The, the third book takes place in 2005. So I have, you know, 17 more years of history for her to slog through and write the wrongs that were righted in the real world. Excellent. I've just realized I've missed a question if you've got time for it. Sure. Um, I forgot to ask you about, you know, are there any other writers who've inspired you and your approach? Absolutely. I think probably the first real spy novel that I read was The Hunt for Red October when I was in high school. Yeah. And that's when I really start, you know, I'm up reading and reading and reading and, you know, I should be asleep. I've got to get up and go to school. Mm. That's when it really hit me that this is something I would like to try. I mean, it took a long time to get from that point to this point, 
So I've got to credit Tom Clancy for grabbing me. And, and I love, I love the Russian angle. I love, you know, that, that was, that was my fascination throughout, you know, high school, college, and, and even to this day. So that's where it started. And then, you know, for a more quote, modern, you know, less techno thriller kind of thing. I loved Vince Flynn. I loved his character as a, a CIA operative who suffered through his own tragedies. I love Nelson DeMille. Not all of his books are spy books, but I love the sense of humor that mm. some of his characters have, mm. the sarcasm and, and you know, they're page turners. Robert Littell, I, I like his books. I mean, there are so many, <laughs> so many. Daniel Silva. Yeah. It could probably go on. Uh, Ken Follett, not again, not all sp- spy books, but I, I love World War II, you know, espionage thrillers. I love the more modern ones. Mm. Just so many, so many. Any spy movies? Any spy movies that get it right? <laughs> get it right. Well, I do. I. Um, there might not be any, but. <laughs> Well, no. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, again, who, who doesn't love The Hunt for Red October? I love Patriot Games with Harrison Ford, you know, basically. Yeah. That's one of the biggest disappointments of my life. Um, <laughs> actually, when I speak of Harrison Ford, I was out at a meeting when I worked at the CIA. Uh, I was out somewhere. Yeah. I get back and find out that Harrison Ford came to headquarters because he was, you know, he's working on some Jack Ryan movies and I, I missed him. Mm. He, I didn't get to see Harrison Ford. So terribly <laughs> tragic day in my life. Um, yeah. But let's see what, you know, I, I loved, not a movie, but I loved The Americans. I know it was a little bit over the top, but boy, that series, I just thought it was fantastic. Mm. Fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. Have you seen Le Bureau, which is a French spy show? I have not. I'm going to write that down. It's really good. I really highly recommend it because it, it feels it to because I I I preferred it over Homeland. I thought it was because um, I liked the beginning of Homeland and I felt it went a bit silly. Yeah, but Le Bureau feels quite authentic for as an outsider looking in, but it feels quite real as as I can tell, you know. And and it's a really good show. So if you haven't seen it, well worth checking out. Excellent, I will and, check um, that out. And it eats a lot of ham sandwiches, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I I mean I'll watch almost anything spy related. You know, I I. I sat through Alias, which was a fun show with Jennifer Garner. Yeah. It was, yeah. the plot was, it was ridiculous, but I watched every single one. I, every single, every single episode. <laughs> so anything spy related, you know, even yeah. slightly absurd, I'll watch. I do have one other recommendation and that would be the dry cleaner by Chris Carr. <laughs> Thank you. Your short on Amazon. I did. I watched it. I thought it was fantastic. I, I wanted more. I was like, Okay, could this be a full feature length film at some point? I thought it was great. I hope so. I am working on it. It's yeah, thank you. No, I have been working on it. I've, I've actually worked on some other things at the moment, but um there's something there's definitely something about George and Lydia that I've um for all my various ways of trying to figure out where that story goes, I haven't lost interest in them. So there's definitely something. It's just depending on when. <laughs> right. But uh, no, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. I thank did. you. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? On a bunch of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, Goodreads, BookBub, all, all of the usual suspects. Um, but uh, the best way to find all those sites, because some of the handles are a bit different, would be my website. And there are links to all of my social media sites. Yeah. Um, or you can just Google the wayward spy or the wayward assassin and uh, things will pop up there. And 
um, you know, the la- my last name's tough to spell. So you can always just Google Wayward Spy, the Wayward Assassin, um, or look at the show notes and you'll see Wallet. It's French. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 